This is Southern California Edison calling with an update. For the outage number 00080019169 service is estimated to be restored on Thursday, December 15th at approximately 3:52 p.m. Bullshit. Friday in the Garage. I'm Corey Culp. I'm Freddie Wolf. Ah, guess what? I my voice has still got a little COVID in it. Yeah, man. But you know, you sound uh, you sound human. I do, and I didn't sound like this yesterday. I sound like a ghost yesterday. And you I were sound, ghosting. I was ghosting. Yeah, why? You know, why would that be of any significance this week? Hmm. Well, this month we had planned on doing a whole month worth of <laughs> ghost stories because the most famous ghost story ever, A Christmas Carol, is. So we talked about this month and we, before got on mic, talked about all the variables of that. Scrooge, one of them you just brought up, I completely forgot about, which was, oh, gender swap. Of, yep. But that's not what we have today. We have one of the most, I think it's, I want to say it's most underseen, unless you know me, I've, I've recommended this movie to anybody that says, hey, I, name a good ghost story for me. Well, it's called Ghost Story. Yes. And I think, you know, not just, it's funny because this is a movie that uh, I have seen, you know, I, I saw it when I was a kid, dude, and I fell in love with this movie <laughs> like 40 years ago. Yes. Dude, there, between this, the changeling, the next, yeah. the, and the next year when we get Poltergeist, there's three years in a row of some fucking classic ghost stories. And they're done in a way that's so different than anything else. And I think that's why they excel at, and at execution is so well done. Yeah. The thing about this movie, well, listen, we're talking about Ghost Story, 1981, John Irvin. Based on this, the, the novel. Peter Straub Peter novel. Straub, yeah. Of the same name. This fucking movie, 41 years later, still resonates with me just as much as it did when I was a little 12-year-old when it came out. And yeah, I'm already drawn to it at 12 because... Well, it's on HBO and there's boobies. <laughs> sure. And a wagging and a wet and Craig Watson's penis. And Craig Watson's penis. But this movie is so great because it brings four well-known oh, yeah, actors in into play and uh, some up and coming actors playing younger versions of themselves in it. And as we noted before we got on mic, only one of them had a notable career after that. And that was the young version of John Houseman's character played by Ken Owen, who you guys know from 30-something. Well, those of us in our age bracket. <laughs> sure. And, you know, he, he's in some other things. But, he, yeah, his big thing was he was part of the ensemble on 30-something uh, for several years. Didn't he get into directing on TV, too? Yep. Yeah. I believe he directed a bunch of, uh, a, lot, a lot of, um, uh, you know, sort of 90s television series. Yeah. I mean, he did some West Wing. He did, and he did a, like almost an entire season's worth of Alias. Right. So brothers and sisters, the mob doctor, Sleepy Hollow. I mean, he, 
Man in the High Castle, and he did all the episodes, well, not all, but 28 episodes of This Is Us. So he's he's well ingrained into television directing now, but yeah, he's the only one that's really had a noble career of the younger actors. See, you've read this the, the, the novel, the Straub novel. Yep. I never read it. Um, you have to think at this time, this is the time when that phrasing, oh, the book is better, <laughs> and there was a sure. film adaptation. I, I've never, I don't have the comparison to make. What I would say about it is the book is different only in the, and, and this, this is all, but the, the book is just far more layered, obviously, um, because it's a 600 page fucking novel right. <laughs> as opposed to, you know, we're trying to knock out an, in, you know, a 90 minute, a hundred minute movie. And there's a lot more going on in the town than, you know, then, but this, th- this was, it's funny because if you have that shop factory DVD, you can listen to Lawrence Cohen, the, the uh, screenwriter talk about, his process, how he was hired. He was hired because he had adapted Carrie and it had been such a monumental success. And, you know, and Universal, when they acquired the rights to Ghost Story, they hired him. And this is quite a fun conversation with him about adapting the screenplay from that book right. to what to what it, what we see on the screen. But the movie doesn't suffer for it. Like, it's not one of those things where, I'm, you know, like sometimes, and I'll say like, I will say this, like sometimes those Stephen King adaptations are terrible and you're just like, fuck, I just read or read the book. You know who I'm talking, you know, I'm talking to you, Tommy Knockers. <laughs> this, the, the thing about this movie that really I fucking love is uh, it is a ghost story and, and they're not afraid to take their time telling us the story. The, the whole premise is, right, the Chowder Club, you you buy your way into it by telling a story, which I thought was great. And it's also, this is kind of fun because it comes a year after The Fog, which starts with Houseman sitting around a campfire right. telling ghost stories. Right. So, you know, there's a, like, there's another little tie-in. Like, go, you know, The Fog is another movie that could fit into like the Changeling, you know, with that. Yeah. It's a good, these are ghost stories and they don't go for jump scares. The scare, it's the dread and it's, it's, it's the fear of what's coming. And that, that's what makes, that's what I always enjoyed about this movie, man, is, you know, it's not a bunch, it's not just a bunch of jump scares. There's, there, right. it's pretty cerebral. Right. The setup for the movie too, like you, you noted, you have the, the older folks standing around. Again, I love the fact that they start off with Houseman. The very first thing you hear is, is, is him talking. If you grew up around when we did and his voice being so iconic and like the paper chase and then of course the, yeah. pa- the paper chase series, you, you would hear, we'd hear his voice every week just from the promos that CBS would run for that show. Yes. We would hear him all the time. He was doing commercials. He was like, his voice was so resonated with us just as much as the movie trailer guy. A hundred percent. There's only, there's one thing I'm wanting is his voice in it more. And I just love how he's, he's so dismissive. He's so fucking great in the movie too. He just, ah. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Totally. When you, when you see, and in the flashbacks, I think they did it really well too, because Wall really sort of portrays that as the younger version of Sears. You know, you, and you can tell these guys have been friends for 40 years and that, you know, the, the pecking order is still kind of the same. Yep. You know, Houseman is still kind of the fucking alpha of these guys. And right. Stairs carry Ricky is still the sort of not, I want to say weak, the weakest of the bunch, because again, over the years, he is definitely, you know, Melvin Douglas and uh, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. You know, their, their characters, they've all four been living with what they've done for 40 years, right. but it's taken the, the toll that was taken on those two. To me, it seems like those two guys, carried the brunt of it. And maybe that's why 
there, you know, I, it's funny because I can't remember. It's been a long time since I read the book, but I would want to go back and look at the book and see why in the, in the relationship between Ava and the, the guys, what, you know, Ricky seems like he's the most detached from it. Right. Yep. Like the other three are really suffering. <laughs> yeah. Like nightmares and night, you know, and the night terrors and all that. The thing about this movie that is so great is you get these four phenomenal Oscar winning legends, right? You get a stare, you get Houseman, you got Douglas Fairbanks Jr. And Melvin Douglas, who would just want two years earlier had won an Oscar for being there. Yes. Yes. The yeah. best, best supporting. Yeah. And, and I believe he also won an Oscar for 1961's HUD <laughs> playing Paul Newman's father. And there's another HUD tie-in because you also get Patricia Neal in this movie. Yep. I, this movie, it just takes its time. And it, to me, it, it unfolds in such a great pace that by the time Wasson has told his has told his story how he's been pulled into it after his father's alleged suicide. Right. I mean, you know, you're, you're firmly in it. I mean, if, if you're paying attention and that's the other thing about this movie, you really got to sort of pay attention. You got to listen. You have to invest the time yep. in yep. watching it. It's, you know, it's not like something that you can, if you miss a lot of that detail early on, you're going to be like, well, this is what, what, what is going on? Yeah. You bring back the naked ghost. What are these old dudes talking about? Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, this is a kind of movie that was, had a short lived, run in Hollywood. But I feel like when I look back at the four movies we talked about, Poltergeist, Changeling, even The Fog, and this, the thing that may, makes them stand the test of time is the fact that they're well-written. Yep. The acting comes first. Yep. When you get the moments with the effects, the effects are great oh, for dude, a 40-year-old movie. I would be remiss to not mention this. The godfather of special effects makeup, Dick Smith, yep. handles all the makeup in this. And it shows, man, it, it shows because he was the guy. I think Rick Baker was still working with, with Dick at that time. I think so. I don't think, he, I don't think he broke out yet. He was just about to break out. Or just about to break out, yeah. His makeup work is so good in this. And, like, there was, and I forgot, <laughs> I should stop the movie to look it up. And I'm like, this is Dick Smith. This has to be Dick Smith. This just feels like Dick Smith. Because you have so many variations of Alice Creek's character in this who we've you know, we know her from a lot of other things, but her, I, are we just going to go ahead and say it? She plays two people essentially yeah. in this movie. <laughs> and I'll just leave it at that. And you can discover why I'm saying it's two people on your own. Cause I, this is one of those movies that we kind of have to dance around and not spoil anything. Right. But the, but even with our experiential viewing of it and knowing that we've seen this so often over 40 years that it's funny how, once you're comfortable with it and so well-versed in how the story unfolds, you're never asking yourself, why are, you at, why are they doing this? Because you're just like, oh yeah, oh right. And it, it, it's such a well-crafted movie from the beginning to the end. You, I'm sorry, but Alice Krieg, if you guys don't know, obviously she was Chariots of Fire the year before this. Yep. That was her first film. Yeah. And if you wanted some of the bigger fare that she's done, she played the board queen in First Contact, Star Trek First Contact. Yep. But she's somebody that's instantly recognizable when you see her in this. And even in makeup at times, you're like, God, dude, she's like, she has, it's those eyes. Her eyes are just so oh, yeah. recognizable. Like, like when I saw First Contact, I didn't know much about the who's playing the board queen. And then in the theater, once it's spread across the screen 70 feet, I'm like, holy shit, is that Alice Krieg? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that was, she's wonderful in this too, as both Eva and Alma and 
even though this is such a story-based movie where it's less about the character, you think it's less about the characters, the characters are so well-defined. Like, you know, when you're talking about Ricky and John and uh, shit, who was uh, the mayor? Uh, oh, Douglas Fairbanks, right? Yeah. Douglas Fairbanks. Yeah, mm-hmm. Wanderly. Wander- Wander- with the way he goes too. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's all, dude, that's horrible, man. Holy shit. Yeah. Alice Kriege, like it's part of that allure. Like there's, it's her voice. It's that sort of haunting, like it's always very lyrical. I'd say her performances, if I had to describe yes. her, yes. very lyrical. Here's the thing. I'm a big fan of uh, Bruce Beresford's uh, King David. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, she plays Bathsheba and she was all, she also, if you, if you, if you haven't seen Haunted Summer, she plays Mary Shelley and it, it's fantastic. Yeah. She is an actress. You, you think you probably, you think, who is that? And then you, if you, you know, you deep dive her, you're like, oh yeah, I know her. Holy shit. And she's like kind of, it's the eyes and that sort of lyrical being, it, it, it just, it's one of those things that just stays with you. Like her performances are, I mean, she's even good in that Stephen King movie, Sleepwalker. She's the well, best yeah, part yeah. of it. Uh, McGarris is a, a kitty cat movie, if you want to yes. call it that. I was, Correct. The only thing that always bothered me about that, and since just talking about her eyes, is the, the contacts that they use in her. I wish they would have just left her eyes alone. Yeah. But you know, she's in a lot of stuff, it, it, but a, mo- a lot of it is obviously UK stuff. Again, I, I don't, you know, John Irvin, the director of this is British and he's done a lot of, a lot of movies that you and I talked about before. We talked about oh, Law yeah. Deal, Hamburger Hill. Well, I got to say one of my most favorite movies with Liam Neeson, he, he supporting role in it is Next to Kin. Oh yeah. Yep. I love that movie so much. Dogs of War. Dogs of War. You, you and I talked about that, just that Christopher Walken small movie, well, not small movie, but movie that most people aren't aware of. And that's Dogs of War. Seek it out because it's fucking tremendous. This movie, Ghost Story, has a very unique look too. Oh, yeah. I heard somebody describing it as a Christmas card, like a greeting card. I'm like, damn, it totally does now that I think about it. When they're, you know, when they're actually in the town, not when they're down in Florida or anything like that. It's a Norman Rockwell nightmare come to life. Yes. Jack Cardiff is the DP on this. Yep. Okay. Do you want to know? I mean, for those of you who aren't familiar with the name, I'll just spout out movies I know you've seen and are sitting on your shelf right now. He shot African Queen for John Houston. Black Narcissus. Yeah. Speaking of genre fair, he did The Awakening for Mike Newell the year before. Yep. Fast forward, Conan the Destroyer in 84. And for George Cosmatos, Rambo First Blood Part 2. Yeah. In 85s. This guy's work is Oh, all over the place. But like, you know, like, like black narcissist was 47 and here he is 30, 34 years later. Dude, he started shooting movies before they had words. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> he did. I mean, he's worked with Hitchcock. He worked, I mentioned Ernie, I mentioned Houston, Joe Mankiewicz for Barefoot Contessa. He's like, dude, this guy's work is, oh, I don't want to miss this. Kirk Douglas is Scalawag. Oh yeah. Fifth Musketeer for Anakin and Mike, How's that for a range of movies? You're like, how it can't be the same guy. But like we were talking about the special DPs that are out there. We talked about that when Eve was on the show. There's just some people that that whose work is not identifiable. It's because they, the the work changes and for the needs of the story being told. Right. Eve's work is the same way. And that's what makes Jack Carter's filmography so substantial. It shows it's very special here because this movie doesn't look anything like the Black Rose. It doesn't look anything like no. Black Narcissus, 
it's very special. And it, it was a wonderful pairing having John Irvin. And we already mentioned Dogs of War. He shot Dogs of War for, for John. It's a beautifully shot movie. Even now for a movie that's 41 years old to look as good as it does. And I unfortunately, I had to rent the movie. The HD version wasn't terrible, but I remember when I got the Shout Factory Blu-ray, it's probably the same digital version that used off of the Blu-ray. But it is a beautifully shot movie. That Blu-ray is tremendous. Yeah. It looks so gorgeous. This is one of those movies we can't divulge too much to take away from the story for people that haven't seen it yet. But I have to say, when you told me how many pages the original novel was, that was always a challenge of any adaptations in that time, in the, you know, the 70s and 80s, where you're getting a lot of those adaptations from novels. And it was a big kickoff. It was really like Jaws where... I've just, I mean, again, for me, it's more experiential for me. That's what, that's the first place I go to because you could go to the grocery store and there's fucking jaws sitting right there while you're in line to pay for your groceries. And it's like, it, that book was everywhere. Oh yeah. And so, so you were getting a lot of those adaptations that got to the point where it was such a draw to have these adaptations for film from these novels. Manuscripts were already being bought before they were ever went to publish and sitting on a shelf of B Dalton. Right. And I'm going to do a little plug right here before I forget. On the 19th screening at the New Beverly, you can get a double feature of Legend of Hell House and Ghost Story on the big screen, uh, 35 mil Tarantino. I, obviously, this must be one of his favorite movies because I saw this movie there, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe. I don't know if he owned the theater then, but I think the last time I saw it on a big screen was at the New Beverly. Um, I have to fact check myself. It was either there or, you know, maybe it, maybe it was at the, I'm going to say it was at the new Beverly just for, you know, if I'm wrong, sue me, but it is playing there on the 19th. If you could see this in a theater with people, it's a super special. It's, it's yeah. a really fun movie to see on a big screen. So there you go. Back to our program. Yeah. When, when the schedule came out for December, like three weeks ago, and I, I didn't really, I didn't know the schedule the calendar was already out for, for new Bev. And you sent me that. I'm like, oh shit. I know. Right. I've never seen Hell House on the big screen. Hell House was on our short list for this month. Too. It was, it was. And we, the thing is like this series. our plan was because there was going to be five episodes this month because there were five Fridays we could have released. We were going to do four movies and the fifth one we're just going to talk about ghost movies in general because we were we were really struggling to come up with a list that we were like taking well edit the list it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't hard coming up with the list no, it was that's hard a, editing it yeah to five it, it or was four. like we just stretch this out to maybe a whole quarter we'll do 12 episodes now there is so many great ghost stories out there and and whether it's stuff that's obviously ghost stuff there's there's some movies that are out there that that aren't, you don't realize they're ghost stories until it's over. Right. Until you get to the last two minutes of a movie. You're like, what the fuck? This is a ghost movie? Okay. There's no disguising here. The fucking movie's called Ghost Story. And be clear, this is not a ghost story. But this just don't, don't mistake the two movies because. Yes. I, I enjoy a ghost story. I know it's, it's not everybody's cup of tea, but they're drastically different movies. So. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, this this is just go. It's funny. Be like, I'll mention ghost story. People are like, oh, then with Casey Affleck. I'm like, no, not with Casey Affleck. What's wild about this movie is, um, I mean, at the time, it didn't mean a lot to me because I didn't know. I mean, I was a kid, but I think this is a Stairs' last movie, Melvin Douglas, and probably Fairbanks' last movie, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Houseman worked, you know, up until his death, but you know, he worked through the '80s. But the the other three, I mean, this was the last. I mean, Stair passed away in '87, but this is the last. 
time we saw him on screen. Yeah. Uh, Melvin I Douglas, so. I think, passed away probably before the movie was out. And then Fairbanks, I think maybe Fairbanks was in something else, but he, maybe this was his last completed film. Something like that. You can, you know, if, if you're interested after you watch the movie and you're, you know, you like old actors and Hollywood lore, yeah. Google it. <laughs> And Fred Astaire didn't do a whole lot of stuff towards the end. You know, he did a lot. I mean, he did. No, a, a, he did Love Towering Inferno, <laughs> and he was he ended up in one of those. You know, remember the amazing uh, the amazing Dobermans? What was the the Doberman yeah. the Doberman Gang and all that shit? He did one of those. And Ghostbusters was his last feature, and and the last television thing he did was actually an episode of Battlestar Galactica. What about that, right? And I love seeing Fred Astaire in this movie just because it's so not him. No dancing. Yeah. And I guess a lot of ways too, you've got Towering Inferno where you are bringing this all-star cast together. And the same thing could be said about the four gentlemen in this movie, but it was nice seeing him play a part where he wasn't, he was part of the story. His character was part of the story and not just a character in the movie. Right. As a, you know, like, like Towering Inferno and that kind of thing. We mentioned Craig Wasson a couple of times in here playing. Dude, what happened to Craig Wasson? Like there was a moment like in the early eighties, right? Like where Craig Wasson was in, he was in, he's in quite a few movies that I liked from, from the early eighties. Right. Body Double, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Yep. Yeah. He played the, he played yep. the doctor, the, the, the psychiatrist at, in the facility there. He's a perfect every man. Yeah. But he, then he ended up getting into television after that. I think the last movie he worked on was, he had a small part in Malcolm X. And after that, it was all TV stuff. And, and I think he did some smaller movies after that. He was in a, a Killian A and the B. Right. And then Alcatraz, that read that, that, uh, <laughs> that awful movie. But he's somebody that was like, yeah. Ghost Story, Body Double are the two movies that I just always think of when I think of that guy. And obviously, Dream Warriors. He's just that guy, man. He picks some really fucking fun things to do. And what's funny is the thing he did after Ghost Story, he didn't he didn't do a feature for two years after that. And it was Lawrence Terman's Second Thoughts, one of those, oh, yeah. you know, TNA movies that you and I used right. to probably get into when we were kids. And Lucy Arnaz and Ken Howard are in that. How funny, man. That that must have come off that came off of the uh, the the craze of like things like meatballs. Yeah, exactly what it was. And I remember how weird it was. Wait, why is Lucy Arnaz in this movie? That was so right? weird. I was like, I, I kind of felt like I was like, not sh like I shouldn't be watching it. I was like, right? oh my God, Lucy Arnaz isn't going to get topless. I'm she? feeling dirty. That's <laughs> like weird. But, <laughs> but Craig is so good in this movie, playing twins in this. And in a lot of ways, he plays two people in body double also. He plays... Yep. He plays the actor, this, uh, this unemployable B actor. And then he's also playing this guy who's like playing Sherlock Holmes, trying to figure out this mystery. And so, and, and he's going undercover and disguising himself. And it's those two performances. It's a great bridge to go from this to body double. If you want to have a, a, a fun Watson uh, double feature, we've all seen dream warriors enough times, but I have a feeling people have seen those two movies less than dream warriors. Yeah, dude, and he's so good, like, you know, playing twins in this, like the twin who, I don't want to, you know, the, the, the twin who doesn't, the twin who doesn't make it to the end of the movie is <laughs> such a prick. Right, the, the <laughs> twin that brings him home. Yes. It, the passing of his brother brings him home. I, I love the way they, they set that whole thing up when his brother dies and he almost set it up like, wait, because he wakes up. Yeah. David, David wakes up like, you don't know if it's a dream, he's like he's dreaming it or not. And it was, just, and it's a long pause. Cause like once is, once the brother 
is committed his uh, his fate. His fate has been committed. It's just, it's this long gap between that and cutting to the brother in bed. Yeah, and it is very even though I've seen the movie. I don't know, upwards in the high teens, low 20s over the 40 years. I'm still always like, I have to remind myself, wait, is he dreaming that? But that's the thing about the movie. You got Cardiff's visuals selling a very dreamlike state. There's times where you don't know what's real and what isn't. Yeah. And they do a nice job of it. Yeah. And they fucking trick you with it because there's times they've already sold you like, here's this ethereal like look and they, it's very dreamlike. And then they cut to something very, where, where the image is super crisp and sharp. And you're kind of going back and forth where you're seeing the ghosty stuff with that surreal look. And then they fuck with you when you have a super crisp image. You don't, you're not expecting it because you've already been subconsciously pulled. You're not going to see anything if the picture looks like this or the image looks like this. You're not going to see anything. And it's not, like you said, it's not a jump scare. It's your mind telling you nothing's going to happen. And when it happens, you're just not expecting. It's not a jump scare in the way you got hard edits now that are creating right. these, the, the, these um, moments that feel false sometimes. But nothing feels false about this movie. Right. And I feel like th- this movie sort of came at, at the beginning of the, fl- the slasher, sort of the dead teenager countdown movies, if you will. Like in 80, 81, everybody was, you know, riffing off of like, you know, still riffing off of Halloween and Friday the 13th. And then those are jump scares and the violence is far more graphic. But to me, this movie holds up better than almost every one of those movies. Cause I got to tell you, man, I, I, I saw a few years ago when we were shooting in Cincinnati, we saw Friday the 13th at a screening at this uh, place that doesn't that no longer exists in Cincinnati. It was a bar when they would run hot themes all summer. Yeah, I got to tell you, man, the first Friday the 13th does not hold up very well. It's still fun, but when you're looking at it, you're like, oh, yeah. I mean, they didn't, I obviously didn't put, there's no craftsmanship into it. I mean, like, if you, when you watch this movie, you're, you're like, oh, wow. It feels rich. It feels, uh, it feels like a novel. It feels like, feels like you're sitting in the snow. I mean, that's the other thing, too, man. It's snow. I mean, other than the cup, maybe the flashbacks when we're seeing him down at the college in Florida. But the rest of it, I mean, the 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 landscape and the and the snow, and I mean, it really lends to the feeling of the movie and the overall yeah. dread. And for me, anyway, like the atmosphere created. There's there's so much atmosphere in this movie. Oh yeah. And you watch some of the other horror movies from that time. The things that were more was kicking off in eighty and eighty one. And that's kind of I feel like that's a reason. Like when you talk about horror movies from the eighties, early eighties people don't think about things like this because right. this movie feels like it could have been made in 1965 when the haunting and things like those, because it does have scale. The other thing, the scale of this movie. I mean, oh yeah. It has scale. Yeah. When, when they're down in Miami and, and I went out Miami, just in Florida, they never really say Miami, but he's in the, the, the brother that doesn't die. <laughs> he's a teacher down at, he's a college professor in Florida. And that's where he meets Alice Creek's character. It like I noted, there's a very distinct look to what you see in Florida to when they get to Melbourne. It's just it's night and day. I mean, they're supposed to sell, and I think it was really clever having it be this warm and tropic area where he's living this life and with this brand new girlfriend that ends up going a little nutty on him. It just disappears, right? Right. To where he has to go home to Melbourne to uh, bury his brother and. 
the contrast between where he was, even in, even though in a depressed state, he was in the sunny tropical area. Now he's got to go back home, a place he doesn't like to go to. And basically, obviously he ran away from, that's the whole point of what they're saying there. He ran away from the cold right. Melbourne town to be a professor and sleep with people all over the place. If you really wanted to dissect this thing, I mean, you could almost make a case that nothing is real after we see him in Miami. Like all of this is, Oh, sure. You know, this is some place that this, this is all memory. Maybe it is. I don't know. I mean, I'd have to read the book again. I haven't, I haven't read the book probably in 30 years. I mean, I read it when I was 15, 16, like, you know, after right. I, I'd seen the movie and then I, you know, I got into the book and Peter Straub and King, you know, were, uh, I think, I, I think I read this right around the same time I read the talisman. Right. But this feels very much like, you know, it's set up like a Stephen King world. It's just not in Maine. <laughs> it's, you know, it's crazy to, to think too, what, what I, and I, it's, it's one of the things I love is this, this was universal. This was their big holiday movie. <laughs> Right. It was yeah, released dude, a week before Christmas. Yeah, this movie's going to be 41 years old, released 41 years ago on the 18th of this month. And when this is and this is coming out like 2 days before <laughs> that anniversary. Yeah. I think with everybody in the movie too, I think they were pushing for a yeah, it was this I remember being wasn't it a little Oscar buzzy? I thought, you know, because of the people that were in it. I feel like yeah, I mean, I feel like it did get that Right, because of Melvin, you know, just winning the year before. And I think that might have something to do with maybe that's what they're trying to go for. But unfortunately, of the four men, none of them are any, really in the movie enough to no. really warrant them to be considered for anything. Wasson, is, Wasson and Kriege are probably the only two characters, uh, actors in the movie that really are on the screen enough to be considered for that kind of thing. I'd say Astaire gets the most... Screen time uh, the other out one. of yeah. all of them. Yeah, I dude, I love um, the, I love the ending of the movie with him with oh yeah, they pull the car out of the pond. Oh, dude, so good. It's just so and, good. and he's just kind of like, well, well, there you go. I mean, he's so like matter of fact, like well, I told you, she's been fucking with us for forty years. Yeah, totally. <laughs> that I mean, oh hey, well, let's talk about the guy. You know the um the guy and the kid. Uh, okay. The, yeah. You know, okay. The, I the, love the, the lackey, the henchman. That guy's great. Oh, both of them. The, the older guy, the, the older, not just the older guy, but the, the, the man and the, the kid adult. and the kid, when the kid pops out of the back seat, fuck scared the shit out of me. I completely forgot about it. Oh man. Miguel, Miguel Fernandez. Yeah. And, and Lance Holcomb, who, uh, you know, plays the young boy, the, their moments really, really lend to this, to the ghost story. Cause what, what better, I mean, I wasn't sure what, you know, their, their escape from a mental institute, there, there's so much going on. Right. <laughs> that, that if you're not paying attention, like I said earlier, you could, you totally get lost in this. Movie. But the, you know, the, this thing grossed 24 million in, in 1981. If, if you, I don't know what the adjusted rates are, but I mean, so I guess it, it was a hit because that you know in, in 1981, 23 million to 24 million dollars is not bad. It was yeah. Couple the fact with this, 13 million dollars for a movie in 81 that's like this. Yeah. That, yeah, that's a lot. That they spent some money, man. And I I haven't listened to the commentary since I got the Blu-ray six years ago, seven years ago, whatever it was. But I don't recall if Irvin got into them. Maybe there's some shoot, shooting restrictions because of the snow. I, I don't. I don't know because thirteen million dollars seems like oh, a lot. Dude, of money. they were buying. They were buying a lot of that snow's man-made. So they were buying. Think, so they were buying yeah. snow. Okay. Yeah. I feel like they were. I think there's a thing on it. That talks about if I remember correctly, 
talking with the Olympic committee because the Olympics were going on in Lake Placid at the time right? because they needed to borrow or buy rent <laughs> this snowmaking machines because they couldn't, you know, they, they weren't, the snow was melting and yeah. So the, it's, that's probably, you know, it's one of those things you don't think about. You're like, Oh yeah, man, they just shot this in the winter, man. And maps that must have been, well, they did, but they shot it later <laughs> and the, you know, and the sun and snow doesn't always cooperate. And there's a bit about that on the commentary. I remember this, there's something else in the commentary. And I, I recall, and I just got reminded of this, just looking at the Wikipedia and Irvin was talking about how, when they were shooting the movie, um, how difficult it was for Fred Astaire. And apparently he confided in to, to, to John Irvin that he felt like he was going to die or he's going to be murdered while they were shooting the movie. And at one point was going to drop out of the movie. And I'm like, that's wild. I don't, I don't, it, it doesn't expand on it here and why he felt that way, but it, it's interesting in you noting that he didn't, this was the last thing he appeared on screen for. Maybe this, maybe his experiences is why this was the last thing he did. Well, you know, I mean, again, also the subject matter. I mean, you know. Yeah. Fred Astaire was born in 1899, 1895. <laughs> I mean, so there's a lot of, uh, you know, and again, you know, the locations and who knows, man. It's uh, it's one of those things, you know. It's, you know, they talk about, it, it is a ghost story. And they talk about, sometimes people talk about strange occurrences happen on movie sets. You know, I mean, who's, who's to say that that's not some of what was going on, you know. Right crossovers. If this movie was trying to be made now, how much do you think they'd change the movie having four frat boys and the way this whole thing plays out oh. um, that leads to the the fact that there's a ghost in this movie? It, to me, it's just a, I don't know, man. It's, it, it's even now being familiar with the movie, it is kind of a rough watch knowing what happens. And, and it, it, it's a very bizarre thing with the four younger versions of of the main characters hanging out with, with Eva, Alice Krieg's character in this, it's, it's, it is a little weird, you know, having these four dudes hanging out with this woman who's just visiting their town. It's very, um, I don't want to say they dance around anything. They're pretty clear about their intentions and there's lots of, you can tell they don't like there's, there's one that actually has a, uh, has a, rom a romantic uh, relationship with her. And I won't, I won't get into that because it's very much part of the story, but the other three were almost jealous of him because she showed affection for him, but uh, ignored the three of them in that, in that way. Yep. And there's a point in there where that all comes to a head. It's what, it's why there's a movie because of what happens in that scene. It's rough, dude. I don't think this movie gets made and told. I don't think this movie gets told the same way that that it does here. If it was made today, I just don't. No, they would. They would. They would change. They would soften some of the edges. Yeah, and it, and it's would, yeah, like you said, they it's, would still play it, but they would play it in the fashion that's more acceptable for right. today's uh, audiences. And I th and I think the retribution given to the four guys would be a little more. Oh yeah. A little more, totally. more deliberate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny like too, like you, like we, you said a minute ago about the end of the movie where they're pulling the car out in the stairs, like, ah, but you know, yeah. it doesn't end that way. Like today, like today, no. you know, somebody's brought up on charges. They're like, what the fuck is it? You know, yeah. you, you know, I, what I'm glad for is they end the movie where they end it and it doesn't, you know, we don't get into the, because there's something, you know, that le that leaves you. That, that's why I was saying uh, again, it's like, 
it's all resolved, but is it really resolved? Is he dreaming? Is this all some sort of like, right. is this, is this one of those things that, you know, you wake up from a dream and you're like, holy shit, you know, I don't know. But I mean, this, this is like the, for me, this is also a perfect movie to watch at night with yeah. the fireplace on, <laughs> just yeah. sort of turn the lights down low and, and just let it play. I mean, again, I'm so glad we did this ghost story thing. I mean, I love ghost stories anyway, man. I, I'll take a good ghost story over a slasher movie every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Oh, yeah. we tease this in November, but this is what we were going to do last November. Yeah. La a year ago, we were going to do, Ghost Story was always on our list, no matter how short or how long our list got, it was always the first one on the on the list. When What's funny is like when we made the new list, I think the other three movies weren't on the list. No, maybe one of them no. was. One was, uh, I, I, I'm going to cut this out. Dead Silence was on the list before, yes. but it wasn't. Or it was, but it got cut. Yeah, it was bumped because it but, was too many. But there's so I many. I think the Changeling was on the list too, but then we decided the Changeling and Ghost Story were too similar. Too similar, yeah. Yeah. But this movie is one of those movies, when I think of a ghost story or I think of a ghost movie where um, I'm going to go ahead and say it because we were going to cover it, but now because we're abbreviated this month, the Innocence was another one that we were going to, this was on our original list. We had the entity on our list. This is why we were going to do a, a more roundabout conversation about the genre. And the, I guess technically it's a subgenre of horror, but this movie is, uh, is something that everybody should have on their shelf. If you, if you love genre and you specifically, you love ghost movies or you're maybe you're not that big on them. This is the one that you should have on your shelf yep. right next to your poltergeist. Cause I know you got poltergeist on your shelf. Dude, you need, you add this one too. And let's just say that this, this, the, one of the most iconic things about this. And again, a throwback to like when I was saying this movie seems like it could have been made in 1965, that poster. Yeah. That simple black and white poster with the word ghost story in the top. The house in the bottom right corner with the, you know, it, it's funny. Like I, I, I don't, I, I feel like this poster inspired possibly the full moon <laughs> logo. It's possible. And, and like, I want to give serious props to the scout that found that house too. Yeah, man. Holy shit. It's, uh, it's a good one. It is. And it, and it was so great about it when you see the flashbacks and when you see it oh, in, yeah. in 1981, it's just like, it has life both times, but in a totally different way. And yep. it's just, that's why this movie excels so well. It's a well-told story. The performances are very subdued, very controlled because you've got a combination of how many hundreds of years of experience. Yeah, and, totally. And it shows the control. I mean, Houseman, we've seen Houseman around this time, especially the paper chases. I mentioned that earlier. And even him kind of like almost mocking himself in commercials and stuff, sitting by the, by the fireplace and, you know, given his overacting of, of, of a narrator uh, as a narrator, but this, he's very controlled, even though he's the alpha of the, the chatter society, he's very controlled and very subdued for a John Houseman performance. And I, well, it also speaks to that sort of button down, stiff upper lip, sort of things you don't talk about, sort of East coast, old American, you know, that, that society, that, that, that world. I mean, that, that's the thing that, that was also for me, it was a peek inside that world, you know, because I didn't grow up. I grew up in California, dude, where it was sunshiny all the time. And, you know, yeah. everybody, you know, you always knew everything about everybody because right. people couldn't shut up. <laughs> it's just sort of the way, you know, that, that sort of 
we don't talk about that kind of, you know, the, the four leads is limited as their, you know, as, as their time on screen is. And I feel like they don't really have much time with all four of them together. I'm sure it was schedules permitting everything in the couple of moments when they are all together and tied with the way that these flashbacks, that part to me feels hundred percent real. Right. I have, you know, I don't feel like I'm watching, like I'm peering inside something that really did happen to these four guys. Right. The thing about another thing I want to just note as we're closing this out, the topics covered in this, you're talking about depression, you're talking about drowning, you're talking about, suicide you're more than one suicide you're talking about the brother multiple did, did, did a brother kill himself or the dad kill himself there's so many things i, I mean we're kind of bordering on uh possible um sexual assault too they're kind of like leaning on a little bit too there's again this is what we we're talking about before there's so many key things in here that now only one of those things to be focused on they wouldn't have them all in there and then like you said even if they were in there they'd feather out the edges or they would just take them out completely. It really is a heavy movie when you sit back and think about what happens in it beyond just the story of this haunting. In fact, yeah, it, it, I can't talk about the movie enough. Yeah. I mean, we could continue, but I mean, I don't, I don't want to ruin it. For no, I, I, it. I feel like we keep talking. We're going <laughs> to say too I much. Know. I mean, I, I do, I'm having a really hard time right now, like not going uh, into detail, but I don't want to ruin it for anybody who hasn't seen it. Anybody who has seen it, obviously you're listening to this and you're like, you know, you know what we, where we can't go. Yeah. You know, we don't, I don't want to spoil this for, cause this is a really fun movie, especially like for a first time watch. Right. Just because again, unlike, most of the movies that were coming out, like when we were kids, horror movies, right. not really a horror movie, man. You know what? I kind of feel the same way about this movie, weirdly, as that I do about Event Horizon. Like Event Horizon's a ghost story to me. Oh, yeah. More than anything. Yeah. Uh, this movie, I'd say this movie has more in common with, like, like Event Horizon is a, a distant relative to the these type of late 70s, early 80s ghost stories that, that were getting pumped out. Where you, the thinking man, you know, you had to think and pay attention and sort of be engaged into what's going on. Very much like the novel. That, that's what I found really interesting about this. Even though it's different from the novel, the movie still, it's like reading a good book. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a reader's digest version of a 500 right. page novel. So yeah, I, I don't, I can't say enough about this movie. I mean, I try to watch it once a year just because I love it. If I have since I was 11 and the movie is only an hour and 50 minutes. Yeah. And it doesn't move that way. You look at that when I, you know, I just got reminded about it. I'm like, I see 110 minutes. I'm like, oh, fuck, is it really? I would have thought it was like, a, it's a, it feels like it felt 90, 95 minutes. It doesn't feel, feel like an almost two hours. It feels more closer to 90 minutes than it does two hours. This movie, if you haven't seen it, check it out. The Shout Factory Blu-ray is the way to go. It's not streaming anywhere, which is a plus because you should just own the, the set. And, yeah. it's got, and it's got new material, not just that new commentary they have with that shout release, but it's got a lot of extra material in there too. Yep. The key is this movie is something you're going to pop in. Maybe you pop it in October with all your horror movies, or maybe you do save it for Christmas time. <laughs> Think about it. It was released at Christmas time. And it, it there there is a thing, you know, in some of the best ghost stories and horror films are released in December for some reason. And for the record, Ghost Story, the novel, is 483 pages. So it's close to 500. That is a lot. Um, of I know I said 600 at one point, 500. It's close. It's 480 pages, which right. is still 
a lot. <laughs> and for those of you that are unfamiliar with screenwriting and, and scripts, basically it's, you got a minute a page. So if you got 110 minutes, cut out five minutes, you have 105 pages. <laughs> yep. There's your difference right there. Correct. So, <laughs> <laughs> But look, man, here, look, watch the movie. And if you dig the movie, I, I highly recommend reading the novel. It's, I mean, I've read several of Straub's novels, but um, this is my favorite and by far, I think his best. Um, and not to say that the rest of them aren't good, but this, this is a, my love affair with the movie led me to the book and I love the book. So if you like the movie, read the book in that order, see the movie first, then read the book. <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to be like, what the fuck? Yeah, I definitely want to read. After seeing this again, I, I definitely want to dig into it. You can get it on Audible, by the way. Ooh, 22 hours and 33 minutes, people. Yeah, That's underrated. That's a lot of listening. It took you a month <laughs> to listen to that shit. Also available on Audible, you can also um, get Hell House, the Richard Matheson novel that the legend of Hell House is based on. Yep. So, you know, if you want to double up with some reading and or some listening after you've watched this movie. But look, watch this movie. Because it's, 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 you know, to me, it's a movie that if you're a fan of the genre and you haven't seen it, you got, it's a big hole you need to fill. <laughs> That's all I got to say. Fill in the holes. Fill in the holes, baby. <laughs> oh, the, it should note to the, uh, uh, the Hell House Audible is quite a bit shorter. It's nine hours and 11 minutes. And it's got Ray Porter doing the narration on that. And he's done some more uh, sci-fi kind of stuff, but I'm sure that it works well with something like Hell House. Dude, I told you, Ghost Story Ghost Story is super layered. That's why it's 22 hours. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, it just, <laughs> I'm not surprised. I mean, I say it, took, it took me longer than 22 hours to read it. <laughs> and, and I guess I shouldn't be surprised that a book is, you know, that's 458 pages. 483. The Kindle version is 532. Yeah. That's so, you know, it's roughly, depending on the first print, is what I was, I just looked at the first print was 483 pages. Yeah, the hardcover so, yeah. is 483 and then the yeah. paperback is the 528, which is more yep. in tune with the Kindle version. Right. Anyway, there's a lot, you got dots of formats. I don't think it's changed. I don't think there's any different about it, but if you're one of those people that shit, right now it's December, you're probably traveling with some family. If you're in a car or if you're flying or on a bus or taking a train, you got 22 hours, man. Yeah. Get on that shit. All right. Yeah. Social media, Letterboxd, and that's Corey underscore Culp. You can also follow us on Insta at Culprit97 and at Karate Pod. You can follow me at Rog and Roll of 33 on your Instagram, or you can follow me at Peter Straub <laughs> on Letterboxd. That's Peter Straub at Letterboxd. Now, uh, all seriousness, yeah, you should definitely do all of those things. See it, read it, listen to it, live it, live Ghost Story, live it, live it. <laughs>